Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo Senior Editor Danny Eccleston and Natalie Merchant. Hello to you both. Hello. 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 <laughs> now, after starting out as the lead singer with Jangle Pop Folk Rockers 10,000 Maniacs, since 1993, Natalie Merchant has recorded nine solo studio albums, including the multi-platinum Tiger Lily, Motherland, Ophelia, and possibly my favorite, 2010's Leave Your Sleep, a conceptual double album about childhood and the poems of childhood. As well as her music, Natalie is a painter, a teacher, and a self-described quiet activist for environmentalism and children's issues. She also has a new album out, the rich, beguiling song cycle, Keep Your Courage, released on Nonsuch Records on April the 14th. Here is the first track to be released from the record. This is the brilliant Come On Aphrodite, written by Natalie Merchant and featuring Abana Coombson Davis of the Resistance Revival Chorus. Come on, Aphrodite, you goddess of love. Come on, Aphrodite, from that mountain above. Come on, Aphrodite, I'm begging you, begging you. I'm begging you, please. Come on, Aphrodite, can't you see that I've been patient? Come on, Aphrodite, can't you see how long I've waited? You're listening to Mojo Record Club. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I absolutely love this album. I have a few questions about it. But first, I read a quote from a very good recent interview with you where you say that record making makes very little sense these days. I like going in a studio with real musicians, paying them well, taking my time, and that takes time. It costs lots of money and nobody buys those records. So the whole process of making records is absurd these days, unless you can make them really inexpensively. So with its two dozen musicians, seven classical string arrangers, a horn section, and members of the Irish groups Lancome and Lusana, what dragged you back into this absurd world of recorded music again? It's a passion. It really is. Um, I definitely am not doing this to make a living anymore. It's because of, it's a passion. And I hadn't really made a studio record like this in about nine years. So I was just really, um, really curious to, fe to feel that again. You know? It has that feel. It has the sound and the feel of the kind of record that people don't make anymore. You know, that kind of that where you go, like you kind of embrace it like an old friend and you go, where has this kind of expansive, you know, epic sound gone or come from? You know, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's lovely to have it back in a way. Well, also, I mean, I just don't want to redu reduce it to um, economic terms, but it is true. I mean, if you can't sell your records, you, you can't really finance the projects and the record companies are, you know, folding and and all that so it's really hard to find somebody to support a project like this but i think also it takes it takes a lot of skill and time to make a record like this not not just my skill obviously but um i'd be in the room with a string quartet with a combined amount of experience of you know 60 years of playing 
you you can't really replace that with a machine. And I think that aspect of record making, the collaborative aspect, the fact that it's a space where lots of different people come together and record making as a collaborative art, as you say, by the very nature of the economics of, of the record industry these days, is also something that's got lost by the necessity of people having to make records in their bedroom by themselves, multi-track and everything. And so this idea of it as a, as a space for collaboration falls away in a way, I suppose. And this, this record is, when you listen to it with the big horn sections and the string sections, it has the feel of a record more from the 1960s or 70s. Yeah. Almost Burt Baccarat at times. You, know, you, you could imagine a whole room of people. Of course, we were multi-tracking. We didn't have a full string section. We only had a quartet. But um, I had a lot of fun with the production of, of I had a sound in my mind that I wanted to achieve. And then I had kind of scrappy methods. Do you have any reference points, any particular kind of like records or producers that you thought, this is kind of what I've got in my head? Yeah, well, I'd say definitely those 60s, um, jazzy and almost Baroque-ish pop records that I loved. Um, yeah, I love the, I just love a big, a big horn section and a big um, string section. And I just had a lot of fun with it. I mean, it's a great sounding record as you've just discussed with Andrew, but um, the songwriting really really fascinating um i loved the kind of uh the the touchstones in uh, uh kind of classical myth mm-hmm. uh, uh i thought you know the tower uh, aphrodite narcissus the tower of babel and it struck me that these this this is a kind of lingua franca that like kind of historically we've always had across time and kind of cultures mm-hmm. and it was great you know that you brought this stuff out because it's full of those myths are full of stories that are still relevant today, even though they're like, some of them are thousands of years old. Right. And when you're writing songs, pops, pop songs, if that's what this is, um, you're kind of limited in the amount of space that you have to work in. So I find that um, a really great tool and technique that I use to expand the meaning of, of a particular line is to use some kind of cultural touchstone, some symbolic language that is, you know, generally known and accepted and understood. And I did that not just with classical myth, mythology and um, biblical references, but um, in Sister Tilly, a lot of references to um, second wave feminism and that counterculture women's movement of the late 60s, early 70s. You know, if I say Zeppelin or Joan Didion or Chelsea Girl, um, those, those phrases carry a lot of weight for a lot of people. Absolutely. And one of, the, one of my favorite tracks, the track um, Hunting the Wren, I'm just kind of interested um, how you heard of uh, Lancome and what it was like collaborating with with Ian Lynch from Lancome. I mean, they play a kind of, it's Danny's description, I'm going to steal it, they play kind of folk with jagged edges, which is kind of the best sort of folk. And I just kind of, I'm intrigued as to how you heard about them and, and ended up collaborating with Ian. Well, 
the collaboration was just that I, I love the song and I recorded it and then I sent it to him and, and he actually liked it, which I didn't know if they would like it because my version's a, a, a little bit more refined. But um, it, I think I retain the bleakness of the theme, but um, they have a more raw approach to their music than I do. Um, I read the Charles Dickens contemporary report of, of what the women of the Kura were experiencing. And it was just heartbreaking. And, and still going on today, there are these, um, these gold mines in the, I think it's in the, one of the tallest places in Bolivia, where there are these encampments of people that are um, you know, in really dangerous situations uh, being exposed to cold, but also all sorts of chemicals to try to um, extract this gold. And there are all sorts of women there um, being forced into prostitution. And the way that they're living sounded similar to the way the Renz of Kura lived. So it's it's still happening today. So it's historical, but it's it's contemporary at the same time. So the the song definitely leads you to a dark places of human nature. And um, I, I thought maybe it was too heavy to put on the record, but um, in light of the things that are happening to women's rights in, in even the more advanced um, industrial nations, I just think it, it, it was an important addition to the record. And, and it wasn't just the, the conditions that the women were physically live, living under, you know, living basically in holes in the ground, covered by rags and, and furs and, and that, but it was the, the way that they were treated when they um, would try to go into the villages to buy food or seek medical help or whatever. There was a, an account of a priest who actually whipped one of the women with a horse whip until, until her back bled in the Dickens account that I read being spat on and, and whipped awful. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> I'd like to ask a question about the uh, the song Sister Tilly, because uh, it's so beautifully rendered, this character. And yet, um, as I think you've explained before, it's that the character is actually a composite. Can mm-hmm. you tell us something about that? Well, I'm realizing that so many of the women of my mother's generation um, they're they're beginning to die, and uh, I just felt like we owe so much to that generation. Women take for granted a lot of the advances that they made for us and the freedoms that we have, and I just wanted to acknowledge them. And I've been to several funerals, and also during the. Uh, during the lockdown, we were unable to have memorials for some of the women who passed. And um, I just thought I wanted to eulogize them. I wanted to give people a song that they could um, that they could play. I, I went to a funeral of a beloved librarian in my small town. Everyone in town loved this woman and she died suddenly of a heart attack. And um, her service was in my daughter's school auditorium. And I knew how to run the sound system because I'd installed the sound system, but um, they asked if I would run the sound for the memorial. 
And then her husband handed me um, a CD and said, you know, play track five when I tell you. And, and he said, and crank it. <laughs> and it turned out to be Waterloo Sunset. And after oh. all these people had stood up and told the stories of this woman's beautiful life, um, he said this was her favorite song and the song she wanted played at her funeral. And everyone started laughing and weeping at the same time. You know, I've been, you know, made aware of that so many times, how, how important music can be at an event like that. You're listening to Mojo Record Club. I just combined a lot of the characteristics of women of that age that I love and put them all into one person. And um, each verse sort of examines a different aspect of her. And um, people are really responding to it with tears, usually <laughs> by the end. And it's, it's almost eight minutes long and it has different movements. It even switches time signature, which I don't think I've ever done in a song before. And at the end, it's just letting, um, you know, we've expressed our love for Tilly and how much we'll miss her. And then it's just encouraging her to go on, you know. It's, I mean, it's interesting. I interviewed Ray Davis recently for the, for the next issue of Mojo. And so, and it was about, he's, he and the rest of the group have put together a, a compilation. Uh, and it's the first Kinks compilation where they've actually been involved in choosing the, the tracks. And obviously one of the tracks on there is Waterloo Sunset. And it's a song that you, I, Danny, have heard so many times. It's kind of on, on the radio and listened to. And yet I went back to it again and I was still finding new things in it. I was still, and I was still finding new questions to ask about it to Ray Davis and his answers still seem to be revealing new aspects of it. It's kind of one of those records that just, I think will never, you'll never exhaust it no matter how many times you listen to it. There is kind of, there's a, and there's a mystery at its core. There's something still unknowable about it that is just beguiling, I think. Yeah. And it's so anthemic, but it's about such a simple theme. It's just yeah. about walking through London yeah, yeah, and not absolutely. feeling alone, you know? Yeah. But also it's a record about passing over to the other side, isn't it? Yeah. That's what Ray says to you in, in the interview, yeah. that it's kind of like he watches people passing over the bridge he, and he, he understands it as something other than, you know, getting to the other side of a river. He's... Yeah left behind yeah. as these people passed over so i'd never thought of it as a no. funeral song before but what you've just said natalie really you know makes a lot of sense his voice is the voice of, of an observer kind of a yeah. um, detached artist you know that, observer he was withdrawing more from life and wanting to become not a performer anymore just a songwriter and that sense because he says to me it's just like you know i realize i'm staying behind and that's okay you know that's okay that i'm not crossing over with them you know so even again on that level it's yes suddenly it's like what a perfect song for a farewell for a funeral it's beautiful yeah going back to what you were saying earlier about your reference points of the sort of the the baroque 60s records with string arrangements and everything the record that you've brought in to talk about today, Chelsea Girl, the debut solo LP from the German singer Nico, produced by Tom Wilson in 1967. 
with John Cale, Lou Reed, Sterling Morrison and Jackson Brown all on it. That is an album that could well be one of those reference points that kind of like a touchstone for the making of the new album. Is that one of the reasons why you wanted to talk about it today? Well, it's funny. Um, when I was asked if I could choose a record that was important to me, and it was the first record that came to mind. And then pretty quickly I realized it's also relevant to discussions about the new record too. I made some notes over the last couple of days because I Fantastic. realized I had a lot of connections to this album that I'd forgotten about. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's what I like to see, homework. I, I like that. So as, as a teacher, you understand the importance of homework, Natalie. I do. Okay. As a mother also. As a, as a mother and a teacher. <laughs> Before we discuss it, let's hear perhaps the most famous track from the record that still overwhelmingly powerful these days, sung by Nico, written by Jackson Brown when he was just 16 years old and released on Verve Records in 1967. It's just that I've been I wanted to start with that track, Natalie, is that 10,000 Maniacs did a cover of These Days that I think I heard on the 2004 compilation Campfire Songs. Was that how you discovered the record? What is the story behind that cover? And We were asked when um, Electra Records was having their 40th anniversary, we were asked to pick a song written by another artist on the, on the label. And I loved that song on that album since I was 19 years old. And um, Jackson Brown was a pretty foundational artist for Electra, So it was a good choice. And not only did we record it, um, Danny, uh, Danny Kay, <laughs> Lenny Kay from Patti Smith's band. There's big difference between Danny Kay yeah. and Lenny Kay. <laughs> um, it's the congestion. Uh, he was the producer of that record. It was called Rubiat. And uh, several years later, Jack Holtzman, who was the founder of Electra, was giving a public talk at the 92nd Street Y in New York. And he asked if I would come down and do these days with Jackson. So I actually got a chance to, to sing it with him with just acoustic guitar. And that was pretty, pretty great. That's fantastic. And he kind of, it's almost like when I've seen him live and he talks about that song, it's almost like he can't quite believe that he wrote that song when he was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. It's impressive. I mean, all three songs that he wrote on yeah. this record. So just going back a little bit, you first heard this song when you were 19, did you say? Mm-hmm. And how, how did very, you discover it? Yeah, I had a very uh, rude, mean, condescending boyfriend briefly when I was 19, the kind of guy who had the huge record collection and thought he had all the answers and basically told me I was talentless and would go nowhere while he was, you know, living at home with his parents at 28. But, <laughs> but he had great records and um, introduced me to lots of music. 
But one of the things he did, he, he played me the Velvet Underground record. And I was really blown away by um, Femme Fatale and All Tomorrow's Parties and I'll Be Your Mirror, which were the three songs that Nico was featured on. And so I took that little bit of information and went and bought Chelsea Girl, Marble Index and Desert Shore. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I was very... Um, I don't know how to describe it. I, I would judge my friends on whether they could sit through the whole, the entirety of, of Chelsea Girl. And if they couldn't, then we obviously didn't have enough in common. Because it's funny, isn't it? Because it starts off with with two of the sort of most accessible, gentle songs. And then there are points where, and then it becomes kind of, unless you've already listened to Marble Index or Desert Shore, there's a sense in which while you're listening to Chelsea Girl, it becomes more of a let's use the word challenging if you've not heard it before. And so I can totally see why when you're in your twenties, it would become one of those records, one mm -hmm. of those records that you test your the friends with. Test. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But um, what was it that, because it is, it has that quality to it that it kind of like, you have to go with it and kind of, an, and lose yourself in it. But what was it that kind of appealed to you about it? Because there's so many moods to it sonically and lyrically and, in terms of how Nico performs on it as well. Well, it was really descriptive of, of me and my life at that moment, you know, being a, a young woman. And, uh, and, and I really had romantic notions about New York as, a, you know, this, even though it was gritty and dangerous and filthy and loud and, <laughs> and all those things, it was the gathering place. It was the crossroads. It was the place that, you know, culture was happening and everyone of any substance at some point was going to pass through that city. And I wanted to be one of them. And I was spending time in New York at that time, just, just beginning to play gigs in the city. And so it was, and, and I actually used, when we got to the point where the band didn't have to, sleep six in a room and I could have my own room, I would stay at the Chelsea. It was my hotel of choice. So um, when I listen to that record, I'm immediately transported to, to my um, early twenties, immediately. And there aren't a lot of records that do that for me. And the more that I've learned about the record, um, the more I'm confused about the parts that I like because, uh, <laughs> you know, Tom Wilson put all those strings and, you know, he hired Larry Fallon to do all those string arrangements and put a flute on it. And apparently Nico hated it. She was famously dismissive of the, of the flute. There's, um, I'm going to play a little clip here. It's from an interview in Melbourne in 1986 and it's of Nico disparaging the flute particularly. So let's just hear a little bit of that. Yeah, right. Well, the records that you then produced, Chelsea Girl was a big departure in that it, it was a fairly, there was a lot of instrumentation on it, a lot of flute sounds, oh, it, very flute, crowded. Oh, my God. How did I that come I was so unhappy out? when I heard that result of that flute taking over. Now, it was a good producer, though, wasn't it? It was, what, Tom Dowd did that LP? Tom Wilson. Tom Wilson. He's a very experienced producer. Did you feel he overwhelmed you a bit on that record, do you? No, it's only... Uh, 
when they dubbed up the flute on top. Oh, they put that on top. Yes, it was much better of a lot. I mean, it gives them it a more unified sound, I guess. Mm. For, you know, the, the overall feeling uh, of a flute being uh, up front uh, all the time. It'd be nice to hear it without it, if they could repress it or something without that flute. Yeah. That's one day. Hello, my name is Natalie Merchant, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. I'm interested in this idea of uh, Chelsea Girl as an album where Nico is struggling to kind of uh, assert herself. There's there's a recent uh, really good biography by Jennifer Otter Bickerdike, Jennifer Otter Bickerdike, um, of Nico, and 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 that's a lot of that's about Chelsea Girl as uh, a record where lots of these male producers and, and musicians kind of come along and say, we know what you need to do, Nico. You need to sound like this and and uh, do this and do that. But l- listening to it again for this, I kind of, it feels a lot more, there's a lot more Nico agency coming through, I think, than 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 that kind of suggestion. It's pure Nico, isn't it? If it had been any other singer, like a singer who could sing in pitch, and had different um, delivery, I don't think it would have been as attractive to me. That it was her voice being so kind of raw and odd and um, juxtaposed with the arrangements. And it's just stellar production. It's just so crystal clear as just, you know, um, Val Valentin, who was the, um, the engineer, I went and looked up his discography and he did all sorts of amazing jazz musicians. Um, he did Billie Holiday. Um, he did Stan Getz and Charlie Parker and Ella Fitzgerald. You know, she had she had the A-team, you know, Tom Wilson and this guy and Larry Fallon doing those arrangements and then having songs written by who? Uh, Bob Dylan, Jackson Brown, <laughs> Lou Reed, John Cale, Tom Hayden. It was just like, I know she she was cranky about it, but it was a great list of collaborators. And um, and also she she really wasn't a musician. She was she was a model. And she sang on a few um, Velvet Underground songs and then suddenly she was making a record i think she she was really lucky to have all those collaborators but that's that's my opinion <laughs> i interviewed john kale recently and um he was basically saying that the her voice the fact that she kind of you know doesn't have perfect pitch is one of the re it basically taught him how to play because he had mm-hmm. to play sort of almost within the spaces that she left so kind of that that he kind of cites her as one of his major influences in terms of how he played music, how he arranged, because, you know, she almost like kind of, he's like some sort of Ulipo challenge or something where one key element has been, re- <laughs> has been removed. And it's like, you know, how do you move on while whilst working with this key detail taken out in a way? Yeah. And he has a very bold approach to music. Yeah. So, to and, and so does she. So to have the two of them you know, in that ballet together sonically, I find it fascinating. And and I didn't understand any of this when I was 19 and listening to the record. I was just completely enamored. 
I was like, she's, she's singing my life. This is my life. And of course, when you're 19 years old, you're able to romanticize some really ridiculous things like uh, lost girls with drug addiction and <laughs> eating disorders, living really, um, you know, selfish and, and probably uh, dangerous lives. You know, a lot of those uh, Andy Warhol superstars, their their lives didn't end so so well. I mean, look at Edie Sedgwick. I remember reading her biography, you know, around the same time of discovering Chelsea Girl. And she was dead of a heroin overdose by 28. Yeah. I was going to ask, actually, Natalie, about the song Chelsea Girls, uh, and which is this litany of the, uh, of the Warhol superstars. Um, it's kind of like... It's it's a not very pleasant kind of uh, <laughs> um, view of the kind of the the Melia from Lou Reed, but I also kind of it made me feel that something about the whole Warhol superstar scene that had kind of troubled me previously, which is about was it just like a big like misogyny machine? Like so, were these women being kind of iconic? you know iconified but then kind of spat out the other end uh, who who there was no roadmap for those people and they were creating a scene out of nothing and um you know or maybe you could compare it to the weimar republic in in berlin and the between the wars but the, it was decadent it was um they were gender bending. It was uh, experimenting with all sorts of mind altering substances. And they were all really young and, and probably making lots of mistakes, but there was something about, um, I mean, the reason that people pay attention to what happened with the factory scene is because it, it was original and it was modern and it was new and, you know, the people who survived it uh, are the people who can best tell us <laughs> about the real history. I have a friend who was raised by Viva. Oh, she wow. Was, yeah. And um, Gabby Hoffman's sister. And I, she, we lived in the same town. And actually, we had our daughters a week apart. And uh, it was crazy growing up in the Chelsea Hotel with all that going on. Yeah, well, all that dark decadence really didn't attract me. In the end, yeah. And I remember um, we worked with Joe Boyd for um, the Wishing Chair back in. I think we recorded that in '84 in London. And I, I remember talking to him about you know I wanted to know about Desert Shore since he co-produced it, and um, he was the one who told me about Nico breaking the bottle and slashing that other singer's face at the Chelsea Hotel, and. Um, that's when I started to maybe think she was complicated in a way I didn't really <laughs> appreciate. Do you and, you know, and, and things things didn't end well for for Andy either with Valerie, no. Valerie Tolaris shooting him a year after Chelsea Girl. So a lot of darkness also surrounding that scene. How do you feel about those the late the, the other two albums that you bought at the same time, uh, Marble Index and Desert Shore? Do you still listen to those? Um, on occasion, um, janitor of lunacy, so it's good for parties. 
janitor of lunacy. <laughs> Behold the begging screen, recognize the desperate plea. There was something, you know, kind of like medieval torture about that album. <laughs> it's kind of, that is that is your karaoke song of choice, is it, Natalie? <laughs> yeah, janitor, janitor of lunacy. <laughs> and, uh, and I love her, her little boy, Ari, singing oh, Le Petit yeah. Chevalier. It's beautiful. so beautiful. And, and again, it? obviously, kind of Ari, such a tough life as well. And like so inevitable kind of sadness that goes with that song as well. You know? yeah, a lot of train wrecks. Yeah. One of the interesting things about Chelsea Girl is that juxtaposition of kind of that sort of almost kind of late 60s mainstream kind of strings, jazz effects. But also um, I was talking to Danny earlier and he pointed out um, a little comparison that he heard, an audio, a similarity to one of the songs on Chelsea Girl and another sort of po earlier pop hit from the 60s. Danny, do you want to sort of fill Natalie in on this? Because I find it fascinating. Yeah, well, a bit like Natalie, when you, when you said you kind of looked at the arrangements and engineering on that record and kind of went into a bit of a rabbit hole, ending up with kind of these jazz classics. I kind of had this um, thing in my head when I was uh, listening to Rapture Troubles in Dreams. And I was thinking, what does that intro remind me of? And it was really nagging at me. And then I kind of, and I, then I realized it was, uh, I can't get, get used to losing you by Andy Williams, which is a single on Columbia in 1963. And I thought it's, it's just too coincident. It looks, it sounds too similar. It's, it can't be a coincidence. So I kind of looked into that and it turns out that oh, producer, yes. the producer is Robert Mersey on Can't Get Used to Using It. But, it, you know, Robert Mersey and Tom Wilson worked together on quite a lot of records, including the Dion records on Columbia. So so I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking maybe it just got in in Tom Wilson's head and um, and that it ends up on this track. Tom Wilson, for me, um, the, the thing that came out of this interview with the two of you was my discovery of Tom Wilson's history. Yeah. This African-American young man born in Waco, Texas, who ends up going to Fisk University, eventually ends up at Harvard. Amazing. And then, you know, becomes sort of house producer at Columbia, produces three Dylan records. And, you know, the Frank Zappa, Mothers of Invention, and then he ends up doing a couple Velvet Underground records. And Tom Wilson was the, the man that took the Sound of Silence, the Simon and Garfunkel song. And after they, I think they had temporarily broken up and had, were in different continents at the time. And, and he ended up putting the strings and, and the big drum on, um, la la la, <laughs> you know, that's Tom Wilson. And just so tragic that, um, he was born with that connective tissue disease morphine syndrome and he ended up dying of a heart attack in, at 48. Yeah. And I, I'm surprised that I, I'd never really known anything about him. It's so impressive that he was doing that pre-civil rights yeah. and during right. civil rights. But, but the fact that he was doing it in the late 50s, early 60s, yeah. is really impressive to me. You know, being the person of 
um, the greatest, you know, the heaviest responsibility in the room and, and the most authority usually. You have a favorite kind of producer, like sort of experience um, in your music career, Natalie, like someone who's really likes to have just really changed the way you've thought records can be made. Um, well, I'd say Peter Asher was really important because I had no clue of how a record was even made. And uh, Joe Boyd was very hands off in the studio. He sat and read The Guardian most of the time, <laughs> which was great. He let us, you know, make our music. But Peter Asher was um, more involved and I learned a lot from him. We've talked about a couple of the tracks on this album, but do you have any favorites that we've maybe not mentioned for any particular reasons? Ones that have kind of, I don't know, influenced you in terms of their sound or just stayed with you? The Fairest of the Seasons, I think is my favorite yeah. song on the record. It's the first song on the record. And um, it's one of the songs that Jackson Brown wrote and he's playing electric guitar, he's arpeggiating electric guitar at the very beginning. And when I hear that, that song, the intro of that song, I just feel, it just draws me back through time. It just is so evocative of a particular period, not just in musical history, but in my personal history. Now that it's time, now that the hour hand is that the dreams have given all they had to lend I want to know do I stay or do I go and maybe try another time and do I really have a hand in my forgetting The Fairest of the Seasons sung by Nico, written by Jackson Brown and released on Verve Records in 1967. So many of the, the, the lyrics are a little ridiculous. You know, do I really understand the undernetting? <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> but the way that she sings it, it sounds really profound, you know? Yeah. And I don't want to take away from her uniqueness, but around the same time I had Chelsea Girl, I also bought a couple Marlena Dietrich records at a, at a household sale. And she would do the same thing with mm. her pronunciation and her phrasing. You've got that look, that look that leaves me weak. You with your eyes across the table technique. I might be brave and say, let's have no more of it. But oh, what's the use when you know I love it. That same, you know, barely in pitch and um, accentuating certain diphthongs and things. Um, I think actually Nico and Dietrich were very similar. I was going to point out at some point that you're slightly under the weather at the moment with a, with a, with a, a, a cold, but it really enhances your Marlena Dietrich and impersonation. <laughs> so I think, I think I, I just, do I mention it or don't I mention it? Because it just no, there's, it there's a great song fantastic. on one of those yeah. records called Black Market. Sneak around the corner. 
<laughs> I'll buy your porcelain figure. And everyone's no, she doesn't say figure, she said figure. If if you hadn't have been up against it and under the weather, one of the things that we were gonna ask you to do was kind of to talk about two new records that are coming out and one of them is a is a King's compilation. And I did because I um it's kind of a new one that they've basically worked on together, the surviving members. Um, and so they've actually chosen the songs and Ray's put little kind of descriptions on them as well. So kind of. I was a massive Kinks fan. Yeah. Which was very funny because there I was in Western New York listening to British people who were playing American music, <laughs> you know. Um, and then when 10,000 Minutes was working on that record with Joe Boyd, we lived in Muswell Hill. Oh, so did you and go I to would the sing pub? Muswell to- Hill. I'm a Muswell Hill Valley boy. And I love that song, um, Skin and Bones. Yeah, the fantastic song. Skin and Bones. Well, when, we, when we have you back on, we'll choose one of those. That'd be great. Skin and Bones and Bones and Skin and Bones. I mean, I had them all. Sleepwalker, Preservation. So you were proper like sort of 70s kinks then kind of, you know, sort of all all the 70s stuff that now kind of gets short shrift by some people. But that was the stuff that you were into. Well, because I could buy it for, um, yeah, for pennies, an track yeah. at the local drugstore in the cutout bin. I actually would steal them. <gasps> because Outrageous. they came in these long boxes. Yeah. And I could pop the box over um, a second one. So I would get two eight tracks for one, just all these kinks records. Yeah. And, and also uh, all the Brian Eno solo records were in there. Wow. It was, a, it was like this weird portal at my local um, drugstore bins full of old eight tracks that were being phased out. Truckload yeah. of them just got dumped in my town and I went Incredible. and just bought them all. Fantastic. Anyway, I love Ray. I know. Have you met him? No, never no. met him. Very clever. And yeah. I think, you know, well known, but not, not always for I, what I think are the, the, the right reasons. Yeah. Demolition. <laughs> and we'll buy up the towns and we'll knock them all down. Build a brand new world of our own. It's just making amazing social commentary too. Yeah. I recorded um, Preservation Society years ago, and we put it out on the rarities. Oh, we God. are the Village Green Preservation yeah. Society. Love that song. That's brilliant. Um, Natalie, we have we have come to the end of our discussion, which has been an absolute joy and delight. So thank you so much for for taking out the time to do this. I know you've been, I know you've been ill and I know, but I also know that you did your research and you did your homework, which I'm so grateful <laughs> to you for. And, and, and I also thank you for the, such a fantastic new record as well. Really, really wonderful. Well, thanks for listening. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Okay. Now we get to the part of the show where we rave about the new releases from past and present. Danny, what record have you brought in to discuss today? Well, it's um, the new Depeche Mode record, which um, is their 15th. It's called uh, Memento Mori. It's an extraordinary record in several senses. 
Um, it comes at an extraordinary moment in Depeche Mode's kind of professional life where, and indeed their personal lives, because it's the first record that they made since the unfortunate, sad death of uh, Andy Fletcher, another founding member of Depeche Mode. And I think that the record, I think the loss of Andy, and I think that in a way, the the new version of Depeche Mode is kind of reflected in this record. We're going to play a little bit of um, one of the first releases off the album Ghost Again, written by Martin Gore and Richard Butler and released on Mute Records. Wasted feelings Broken meanings Time First is an old mate of Martin Gore's, but during lockdown, they started writing songs together, very much in that kind of modern way of, I'll send you a sound file and you muck with it and send it back. It's a bit like those drawings you used to do as a kid when you did a head and lots of, yeah, the somebody else corpse. did a tor- <laughs> torso, yes, yeah. and somebody else did the legs. Um, but I think it's really opened up Martin Gore's kind of songwriting style because I think that just having to write songs where you have a completely different and new audience, but even if that audience is Richard Butler from the Psychedelic Furs, I think has really broken Martin Gore out of um, some of the kind of, um, you know, just some of the kind of cul-de-sacs he'd got himself into kind of sonically and as a songwriter. So it's only four songs on the record, but that is a kind of third of it. Mm. And I, I think it's not just the four songs that are co-written with Richard Butler that are different and interesting. I think that kind of whole, the outlook, I breaking us out of the way we normally look at things, has definitely influenced the whole record uh, positively. We've just heard Ghosts Again, the first single off the record. And um, I think, you know, it's it's a much more direct pop song than they've put out for a number of years. Yeah, It feels like a, a song that's not just for Depeche Mode fans and it's not, you know, to stroke the egos of the individuals involved either. It feels like um, it's envisaging a broader, wider audience for the group. It's interesting hearing you talk about that kind of the essential nature of kind of band dynamics and kind of the the negative aspects of it the positive and that kind of tempestuous kind of core because my choice this week is is the new compilation uh by the kinks um it's called the journey part one and it's the first it's the first collection of the band songs that have actually been compiled by the surviving members of the band and it's interesting because ray has divided the songs up into, into some revealing categories which includes songs of ambition achieved, bitter taste of success, loss of friends, days and nights of the lost soul, songs of regret and reflection. And in a way, it's kind of classic kinks because it seems to offer some insight into 
how Ray works as a songwriter and how Ray thinks about his songs. But does it really, you know, does it do that or does it offer kind of more mystery and obfuscation? I mean, I talked to the three surviving members of the Kinks for, I think it's the next issue of Mojo. And two things struck me. One, how Ray and Dave seem to inhabit this world of kind of brilliant riddles in a way, riddles and aphorisms that we've kind of gone beyond the point of ever getting the full definitive story. You don't go in expecting that anymore, but also how battered they seem by it all, how being in the kinks has really taken a toll on these, on these two people. And that, you know, almost like the burden of, of, of having such great talent. It didn't, you know, I think one of the, the, the two things maybe that, hopefully come out of the the piece are of the obvious genius the the not just the songwriting genius but also the the arrangements the sound of the kinks records and how great they still sound but also the fact of doing it and being in the in a band like the kinks just didn't seem to be any fun at all i fell in love with the songs all over again their mystery their unknowability, even songs that I'd never previously liked, like Days. I asked Ray about um, Days, and he said, I was trying to find the balance between oversimplification and overcomplication. It's like a cryptic crossword. I'm taking the listener on a journey, but the journey is inside themselves. And he talked about a little a bit in Days that really fascinates me, um, the bit where he sings, I wish today could be like tomorrow. And he called it the pre-chorus. It's this four-bar phrase that takes the focus away from what the song seems to be about. Thank you for the days. But he also says it's the because part of the song. It's the reason the rest of the song exists. And I just thought, how brilliant is that? So maybe let's hear that magical bit from Days, written by Ray Davis and appearing on The Journey Part 1 and released on BMG Records. The reason the rest of the song exists. I wish today would be tomorrow. Life is dark. It just brings sorrow, let it wait. Thank you for the day. Those endless days of sacred days you gave me. I'm thinking of the day. Only the Kinks could make a compilation record this complicated. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because it's yeah. like it's like just just choose some tracks, put it. No, no. Ray's right. got to, Ray's got to give each section a subtitle. Yeah, and then uh, it's got to come in two parts. And and it's also not entirely clear what journey part two is going to be or whether let's be honest here whether journey part two will actually come out it would be very unusual for the kinks that that they would actually fulfill something that they say they're going to do yeah so we you know we wait with let's not wait with bated breath for volume two but let's hope it does come out because i mean it's a great compilation yeah and and it does fulfill exactly what um ray says in, in in his interview with you where you just didn't want it to be like other compilations. Of course, it was never going to be like other compilations because it's a Kinks compilation and, and Kinks songs are unlike any other band songs. And I mean, that's the thing that I get coming back through this compilation, listening to these songs again, 
it, it's like sorry sorry this is the mid 60s yeah are you sure because there's nothing like this you know he's i suppose ray davis invents the psychic di- download or the psychic terrain pop song doesn't he yeah. and you know there's him and there's pete townsend but pete townsend kind of does it because ray davis has already mm. done it there's a point in the kink's career and there's a point in ray davis's life where he decides to step out of he's if if the, the you know if the swinging 60s is this travelator he steps off and decides to just stand back and watch it all pass and he does it for the sake of songwriting but also by its very nature it's a gesture that means everything passes him by both literally and metaphorically and so you have this kind of brilliant observer but at the same time feeling like they're being left behind which is of course exactly what Waterloo Sunset is about you know it's kind of it's it's about you know I've had to do this I've had to be the person who stays indoors who doesn't become part of the hubbub at Waterloo Station but just observes from afar and you know what that's okay but of course there's always that sensation with everything Ray says that you don't believe him you know that that it's not okay you know there's always that sense of regret you wouldn't want to be him no I don't wouldn't I mean I wouldn't want to be I suppose like the, you know that I can think of lots of songwriters and pop stars I wouldn't want to be but I certainly wouldn't want to be Ray Davis and Dave Davis but I'm so glad that they were there doing it so that I didn't have to you know and kind of because the the rewards are just so just so huge and so vast well look it's been an absolute joy speaking to you and speaking to Natalie you have been listening to Natalie Merchant, Danny Eccleston, and myself, Andrew Mayo. That was the Mojo Record Club. Hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. And please look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. I would like to thank you. Hello, this is Natalie Merchant. Um, I'd like to thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club. This was not recorded live in Warsaw, Budapest or Prague.